0: I really am trying to figure out ways to make sure that we're understanding not only a book that was written 2,600 years ago but that we think about it with an eye toward who we are today. So I thought an interesting opening statement might be to ask you, just an introduction I should say, to ask you are you familiar with the line anybody read about or know about the line the line is a project planned by one of the big power people within Saudi Arabia and and it's a Saudi Prince's pet project right now I, I want you I've plugged this in trusting our sound is working Is our sound working good? I'm going to play you a short two-minute video about the line, all right?
1: For too long, humanity has existed within dysfunctional and polluted cities that ignore nature. Now, a revolution in civilization is taking place. Imagine a traditional city and consolidating its footprint, designing to protect and enhance nature, The line will be home to 9 million residents and will be built with a footprint of just 34 square kilometers. And we are designing it to provide a healthier, more sustainable quality of life. The line's communities are organized in three dimensions. Residents have access to all their daily needs within five-minute walk neighborhoods. And the line's infrastructure makes it possible to travel end-to-end in 20 minutes with no need for cars resulting in zero carbon emissions. By leveraging AI technology, services are autonomous, saving you time and effort. Designed by world-leading architects, the line is 500 meters tall, 200 meters wide, 170 kilometers long, and housed within an elegant mirror glass facade. Intelligent solutions create efficiency And year-round temperate microclimate with natural ventilation. Energy and water supplies are 100% renewable. The line is designed as a series of unique communities, offering a wealth of amenities, providing equitable views and immediate access to the surrounding nature. With 40% of the world accessible within six hours at the heart of the globe's key trade routes, a place for commerce and communities to thrive like nothing on earth seen before. The Line, the city that delivers new wonders for the world.
0: Uh, I, I watch things like that, and in some ways it gives me a buzz. I think, okay, that's kind of cool. In some ways, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> like, oh my heavens! And who do we think's running all of this? And and their AI is going to infiltrate all of our business. And what is this concept of this is going to be zero emissions, and we're going to pay for it by all of that oil and gas you buy and burn from Saudi Arabia. And 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 then Saudi is going to build this thing. And and I, I'm telling you. Part of me gets a buzz and thinks that's pretty cool. And part of me thinks it's give me the heebie-jeebies. Now, I love the idea of a concept city. And that's what this is. Uh, This is what people call a concept city. They've got a concept. And and the concept you saw. The concept was uh, uh, something that's cool. Something that works with the climate. Something that's cutting edge. Something that's community with a wealth of amenities. Something that's zero emissions and appeals to the green part of you. You know, something that's, you know, all of these things. They've got the concepts down for this city. You didn't see anywhere in the line a slum. You didn't see anywhere in the line people throwing garbage on the ground. You didn't see practical things of life. You just saw these really buzzed concepts. And I mean, that's understandable. They want to put their best foot forward to try and get people to invest and talk about it. Will it ever come to be? Uh, I I doubt it. But, But it's got some coolness to it. But it's a concept city. Now I want you thinking in concepts today. Because I want to talk to you about Micah as a concept book. But the concepts we're using aren't zero emission. They're not uh, individual communities with a wealth of amenities. The concepts in Micah are a little bit different. So let's venture out and let's go see Micah. A concept book and to do that we'll pull it off the shelf we're gonna open it up and what I'd like to do with you is look at three different concepts I want to look at the concept of authenticity which is a very important concept in the book of Micah I want to look at the concept of justice also very important in the book of Micah and a third is the concept of promise Which is incredibly important, not just in the book of Micah, but in the entire Bible. The Bible can be seen as a meta-narrative of promise kept by God. So, let's start with authenticity. I pulled out about, uh, I think, three different verses I want us to look at, to look at the authenticity issue. The first one, we made a reference to last week, but it's Micah 3, 1, and little bit of verse 2 uh, so that's like whoops whoa go back and I said here you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel is it not for you to know justice you who hate the good and love the evil sin you hate I mean the good yeah You love the evil. That's pretty stout. I am absolutely convinced we need to know the difference between good and evil. The problem is, we don't oftentimes want to. Or we have soft little answers two very difficult questions as we just repeat a mantra without a lot of understanding if you were to take an ethics class at almost any university i just can't conceive that they would teach an ethics class without teaching you about euthyphro's dilemma now euthyphro is a dialogue It was a dialogue that was written by Aristocles. You say, who's Aristocles? (laughs) Aristocles was a playwright in early Athens, actually mid-Athens. And Aristocles wrote plays. And then Aristocles started hanging around a guy named Socrates. And Socrates called him out of being a playwright, and helped him become a philosopher instead. So Aristocles went by his nickname, Old Broad Shoulders, or as you might know it in your Greek, Plato. So Plato wrote up, and and his writings have the flavor of a playwright. I mean, they've got introductions and points and drama and conclusion. He was a vivid, great writer but he's writing philosophy designed often as dialogues. And he has a very important dialogue between Socrates and Euthyphro. Euthyphro is a Greek name for a fella. It means, um, Euthus is straight and phroneo means thinking or thinker. It's a straight thinker or to think, the verb, I guess. But it, Euthyphro means straight thinker. It's a made-up name. Because Euthyphro is anything but a straight thinker in the story. It's a story laced with irony. So here's the story. Socrates is an old man at this point. He's like 70 years old. But everybody knows that Socrates is a wise fellow. He's had a long storied career as a teacher. So you've got Socrates old and wise and Socrates has been called by a young man to go to court because they're going to prosecute Socrates for a capital offense, corrupting the youth. Now you've got Socrates, he's this old wise guy. And as he's walking and going to court, he comes across Euthyphro, by name a straight thinker, By life, anything but. Euthyphro winds up real quickly becoming obviously just young and foolish. So you've got these polar opposites. Socrates says, Well, or Euthyphro says, You're the famous Socrates. What are you doing? Going to court. Socrates says, I'm going to answer charges. What are you doing? Euthyphro says, I'm going to bring charges. Socrates says, he says, what what are you answering charges for? Socrates is answering charges for corrupting the youth. What are you prosecuting? Oh, I'm going to see that my dad gets put to death because my dad did stuff that was wrong. Oh, what did your dad do? Well, there was a slave who had murdered somebody. And my dad had that slave bound by the side of the road as he was trying to escape And while my dad went to find out what he should do with the slave, the slave died. So my dad needs to die. And so that engages them in this dialogue. And you've got, as I say, a study of opposites. You've got Socrates over here who's answering charges... You've got Euthyphro who's bringing charges. Socrates is charged as being a corrupter of the young people. And if anything, when you look at Euthyphro, he's a corrupted young guy that Socrates is going to try to straighten out. So Socrates says to him, so you say that your father was, I think uh, David Capes and your Greek students, maybe Eusebius is the, the, the word that's used. You think that your father... Um, uh, is not a pious guy. What is piety? What does it mean to be pious? And Euthyphro just gives these real quick little answers that he doesn't understand and that make no sense. But he's real ready with them. And he says, oh, Piety, that's doing good like I do. I define what's good. You want to know what's good? Ask me and I'll tell you. And if something, I was talking to a a friend in the back this morning. And he was telling me about a buddy of his who doesn't like the apostle Paul. and, And just writes Paul off. Why? Because Paul indicts as sin some things this fellow doesn't think are sinful. So Paul's an idiot. Or not an idiot, but not worth following. I mean, do, do we define good and evil by our life? By what we choose to do? If I decide it's a good thing for me to to go to Mel and to, to take his car keys and just drive his car off and sell it? <laughs> I mean, if I want to do that, does that make it Okay no of course not and Socrates points that out says well can you really say that what you do is good and shows that that's not an adequate answer that nobody can really find if that's the case what's good for me isn't what's good for you and it's not what's good for you and it's not what's good for you because we all have different ideas of what good is if you press us to the details so does good just change moment by moment person by person I was looking at old advertisements uh, earlier in the week I don't remember what brought it across my attention but there was an advertisement from the mid 1960s of a pregnant lady smoking a pack of cigarettes well not a whole pack she had the pack she was smoking one and it was talking about all the important reasons pregnant women should smoke should yes yes this is a 1960s, Gwen. Things were different then. Uh, you're not old enough to know, but ask your husband. He's been around forever. Um, reasons pregnant women should smoke. It seemed good to the tobacco company that, that pregnant women should smoke. Does that make it a good thing? I don't think so. And so Socrates points that out. And so Euthyphro says, well, you know, now that you mention it, that's not really what piety is that's not what good is Uh, what's good is what's dear to the gods if the gods like it it's good and socrates says well but the gods are fighting all the time because one of them wants one thing and one of them wants something else how can you just say that the gods are what's good He says, okay, 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 that's a good point. Well, whatever all of the gods agree to being good, that'll be good. And Socrates says, well, is it good because all of the gods agree to do it or agree that it's good? Or do all the gods agree that it's good because it's good? Is good itself something or is it just something that we're labeling with the gods? agreement?" And that's not all. I mean, Euthyphro had thrown out society's behavior, but that quickly got gutted by Socrates. I mean, it's one of the biggest predicaments that the U.S. and, and England had during the Nuremberg trials was what do you prosecute the Nazis for because the Nazis did not violate German law. So if society says it's okay, does that make it okay? Well, No. And and this idea of where good and evil come from needs to be understood by everyone. We all have a moral compass that helps us determine good and evil. But that moral compass we've got is because it's been hardwired into us by God. And it's also a corrupt moral compass. So we're not perfect at it, even though we've got it hardwired into us that there is such a thing. The biblical answer to this is that God himself has a character, an ethos, a a morality. And that whatever God would do under like or similar circumstances here on earth is the moral good. It's what we call good. Good is a descriptor of God's morality. And and biblically we have that, but the problem is if you don't have that base understanding, then you get in the position they were in in the time of Micah. You might hate the good and love the evil. And authenticity says we need to be authentic to reality. Authenticity has an authenticity to reality. And we should never confuse the doors of good and evil. Because I promise you, those doors lead to different places. Micah continues this passage. He says, then these people will cry to the Lord, but he won't answer them. He'll hide his face from them at that time because they've made their deeds evil. These are people who don't have a genuine repentance and a genuine cry for God, for God's purity. It's all narcissistic. What I believe says is good is good. What I believe is bad is bad. If you cross me, you're wrong. And when the times get tough, I'll cry out to God. And we expect God to answer. Even if answering would affirm the evil as right, God's not going to do that. God cares about authenticity. God cares about integrity. He cares about honesty. He cares about ethics. Those are important aspects of the character of God. And he has made our world where those are to be valued and pursued. Not approached with an eraser and rewritten. So he continues. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray who cry peace when they get paid to do it but declare war against somebody who's not paying them. This is the pay to pray passage I talked about last week. You pay the fake prophet and they'll tell you everything's dandy. You don't pay them. They're calling curses down on you. Therefore, It shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination, without an ability to understand anything divine. Micah is saying that, you know, you you are a fake prophet. You're saying what people want when they pay you. You're saying what you want when they don't. And what God's going to do is just make your vision so dark. Because God doesn't ignore falsehood. He doesn't ignore it in them. And he doesn't ignore it in us. Deceit is not our friend. Lies are not our friend falsehood deception trickery is not our friend Jesus says that he is the way and he's the truth he says the enemy is the liar the father of lies we of all people who are people of the book should understand the importance of integrity and truth. Authenticity is extremely important. It's a concept that we can build our community and city around. Let's talk for a minute about justice. Here's your first passage. It's one we just looked at in a sense, but it's in the same flow. Micah 3.8. But as for me, as opposed to those pay-for-pray pof- prophets, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. I'm filled with Power. Now what was it in that passage, this is your quiz, you don't have to answer out loud, but Miss Carolyn will, but it's your quiz. What is it that made Micah super powerful? He was filled with power with the spirit of the Lord. I mean, do you remember Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a A locomotive. locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. He could, bullets would fly off of him. He had X ray vision. He could, like, melt things with his eyeballs. And what made him super powerful was he was from a planet like Krypton, Krypton or something like that, or Klepto or something. <laughs> Krypto, Krypton. He was from another world. He was from another planet, and that was the source of his superpowers when he came to our planet, because evidently gravity was different or something. I don't remember at all. Um that's not the source of Micah's superpower Micah's superpower comes from the fact he's filled with God's very breath the spirit of the Lord Ruach Adonai Ruach it's the word spirit the word breath the word wind This is not just any spirit, it's not just any wind, it's not just any breath. It's that of Yahweh, of Adonai, of of the Lord God. And if you've got the breath, the Holy Spirit of God in you, you've got power. Now the interesting thing from a Christian perspective, let's get theological for a minute. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit did what is called selective indwelling. The Spirit would come upon Micah. The Spirit came upon David. In fact, David would pray at one point in Psalm 51, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. The Spirit would come to Isaiah. The Spirit would come to various prophets at various times, and they would utter forth, The word of the Lord. But Joel prophesied that there was going to come a day where God would pour his spirit out on all of his followers. And that happens on Pentecost. And Peter talks about it. When when everybody's stunned because of the presence of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit's doing, Peter says, you know, I don't know why you're stunned. This is what Joel said. Let me move my tuna aside for a minute for Peter. Although Peter was a fisherman. Just saying. In the last days. That's where we are now. In the last days. In the last days. It shall be, declares God, that I will pour out my spirit on all. All flesh. Everyone who's a follower of God gets the Spirit of God. And that's important. Jesus prophesied about it at the Last Supper. He, Jesus said, there, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he will convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he will bear testimony to me with you as you go out into the world. The Holy Spirit will do these things. He'll remind you of the things that I've taught you. I I mean, the, the Holy Spirit is at work within us, the believers. Which makes it really interesting to see that we need to understand we can be filled with power. Now, as for me... I'm filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. Justice is part of being filled with the Spirit of God. Justice is an important concept in our city because justice is part of God's Spirit and presence. It's not just power, justice and might. Now, Mike has got these superpowers. Here's your next quiz. What were his superpowers? More powerful than a locomotive? Faster than a speeding bullet? Was he able to leap tall buildings in a single bound? Could he fly around the earth counterclockwise and make time go back like that was Superman 3 or something one of those movies no look at what his superpower was filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord with justice and might filled with those things to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin the superpower that Micah had was to understand good and evil, the word of the Lord, and apply it in life, specifically in his calling to be a prophet, but for you and me and our calling in life. I enjoy the practice of law. But if the practice of law is not for me an opportunity to apply the Word of God into that calling, then I'm missing the power. You might be a homemaker. But if you're being a homemaker without applying the Word of God in what you're doing, you're missing the power. You might be a schoolteacher. You might be a garbage collector. You might be an engineer. You're probably a whole lot of things. A lot of you are parents and grandparents. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you've got a superpower if the Spirit of God is in you and you take the Word of God and apply it in your life. That's a superpower. Superpower. Knowing and applying the word of God. It's justice and it's a superpower. Now Micah goes, Micah 3.1, he set this whole thing up by asking. I said, here you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Isn't it for you to know justice? Aren't you supposed to know it? This isn't just an intellectual knowledge. This is a practical knowledge. Justice is a courtroom word, but it's more than a courtroom word. Don't think justice is simply, oh, well, that means in court things need to be fair. Well, yes, in court things need to be fair, but justice means a lot more than that. Justice applies in day-to-day life. I might ask you, what is justice? And I... Everybody can have their own definitions. The the legal scholars debate and philosophize about this. I've studied this idea before law school started studying it. Started studying it in, in college. Not just from a philosophy perspective, but also from a linguistic perspective. Because justice is a very important word in the Hebrew. And it's a very important word in the Greek, in the Bible. But I've spent a lot of time studying it as a lawyer and reading the legal philosophers. And I'll tell you where I landed decades ago, and I haven't seen anything that changed my mind yet. A core concept of what justice is, is consistency. It's consistency. It's the same yesterday as today as tomorrow. It's treating Sharon the same as I treat Hank. As I treat Lorraine. As I treat Gwen. It's treating Steve the way I would like Steve to treat me. Justice is consistency. Let me put it, I'm using Steve, let me put it in an engineering term. Newton's third law of motion. To every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. If you've got a force on an object, that force is gonna have a a, a reciprocal force. That's the reason jet engines work. Jet engines work because all of this flow and explosion pushes backwards out the back of the engine So you're going to have an equal and opposite reaction and it's going to give forward thrust to that. If you ever want to experiment with a jet engine and you don't have a jet engine, get a four-wheel kind of a platform like you could stand on. It's got four wheels and put a bunch of sandbags on it. I'll guarantee you if you take a 50-pound sandbag and you throw it off the back of that little cart you're on that cart's going to move forward it's that principle this is the way God set up the world I was watching this scientist talking about uh, 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 it was Neil Tyson somebody and he was being quizzed do you believe in God and he said well there are certain scientists who do but he said You know, that to me, that's, I'm a scientist, that's not a science question. And even those scientists who believe in God, he said, that's what they do on the weekends, that's not what they do in the lab. And I thought, well, bless his heart, he doesn't read enough science, because there are a lot of scientists who would tell him otherwise, including Newton. Because it's the belief that God set up this world with these rules that reflect his character. Paul says in Romans 1 that that we see in this world the invisible attributes of God. And one of the keys is consistency. Another word for it is justice. That's the way it is. That's what justice is at its bottom line. It's a consistency. Consistency. And that's the real problem Paul is dealing with in the book of Romans. One of the real problems is how can a just, i.e. consistent God, say you're okay to Rick Meadow when Rick Meadow's not okay. I love Rick. He's a brother to me. He's a good guy. He's as good a guy as I know. But he ain't perfect. He messes up horribly. Horribly. Even though he's one of the best people I know. So how does God say? Or sitting next to him is Tim. Tim's not looking high and mighty right now because Tim's a great guy too. And they know me. I hope they'd say I'm a great guy, but they can say I mess up hugely. That's a word. I made up. Hugely. So how does a God who's consistent and just say, you get in you know get in when none of us deserve to get in that's what paul's dealing with and paul's saying the way god does it is is the sacrifice of jesus pays the price for sin so there was a consistent punishment for the sin that the just judge requires Micah continues. He's got this great passage. I'm going to speak tomorrow at HBU on justice for all. and I'm going to tell a story about this passage. So I don't, I'm not telling it to you today, but I've probably told it in here a few times anyway. With what shall I come before the Lord? So how should I bow myself before God on high? With what should I I I I understand the love or good and evil and all of that. And the answer? Well, God told you, human being, what is good? It's to do justice. Very first thing He says do justice. Be consistent. Love mercy consistency and justice doesn't mean if someone does something you don't forgive them because we've been forgiven we understand how to extend forgiveness because we've got a two by four in our eye we don't judge someone with sawdust in their eye because people who live in class houses should not throw stones There's room for mercy as well. This isn't talking about retributive justice where I'm going to get even with them and it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's a quick way to a blind and toothless world. This is talking about treating people fairly and right and then extending mercy to them when they need it and walking humbly with your God because that's the only way you'll ever figure out how to do that stuff that's what justice is now before we leave i want to talk about the promises because our city our concept city it's got not big glass walls that run from the gulf inward for 175 kilometers ours are built up with a promise look at what micah says in micah 4 It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Don't get all geography on me and say, well, technically Everest is higher than that thing in Jerusalem. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the, 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 the prestige, the, 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 the purpose, the, the value It'll be the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and the people will flow to it. It's a poetic picture of the value. If you follow the news and you saw what happened in Turkey and Syria, you and I are both acutely aware right now that we live in a world that's filled with devastation and tragedy. Many of you have experienced devastation and tragedy that I I can't relate to. It's that bad. But what God says is, yes, there's devastation and yes, there's tragedy. But the faith that is affirmed is that God is on the other side of every door. There is not a door that we could ever walk through where we won't find God on the other side. And we may go through that door in misery. We may go through that door hating God at times. Certainly frustrated with him and not understanding. But God says, that's okay. I'm on the other side of the door and I'm faithful to you. And my mountain, in the last days, you're going to see evidence of it. And in the last days, many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob. That he can teach us his ways. We want to know good and evil. That we may walk in his paths. So we're walking in the good. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The word of the Lord is going to usher forth from Jerusalem. Easter? Is any of this ringing a bell with the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem? my grandmother used to say my mom's mom grandmother Catherine used to say well truth will out and I thought that was probably some hick expression I knew what she meant she meant the truth's coming out but I mean truth will out it just seemed awkward so I figured it was some hillbilly expression from when she was a kid in Tennessee (laughs) turns out she was quoting Shakespeare I, I had to get into adulthood before I realize that. The Merchant of Venice, hence the Venice Museum here. Lancelot Gibbo, Act 2, Scene 2. Truth will out. The truth comes out. Out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem... The word that became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth, which give meaning and understanding to the law, came through Jesus. In Jesus, we have the fulfillment of this prophecy of Micah. And the prophecy continues. He'll judge between many peoples. He'll decide disputes for strong nations far away. They'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation won't lift up sword against nation. Neither will they learn war. It's not over. We're not finished with the last days because this hadn't happened yet. But it's coming. Um, There's a fellow who's Name, I can't pronounce. He was a Russian sculptor. His name's the Russian version of Eugene. Okay, so I'm just going to call him the Russian Eugene, who did a number of sculptures, but this is one in 1961, I think, was the year that they put it in front of the UN. And this was the inspiration for it. And Isaiah's got the same expression of beating their swords into plowshares. But with the coming of the Lord, there is promise. Promise we're beginning to experience now and promise that we will experience in the future. Because, look, everybody's going everybody's gonna to sit under his vine and his fig tree. That was, that was an expression of, of, of comfort, wealth, and life being really good. It's like, we'd say, easy street. They'd say, sit under your fig. No one shall make them afraid. Because the mouth of the Lord, Kipi Adonai Deber, has spoken it. All the people walk, each in the name of his God, but we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. What do you fear? Our daughter, Rachel, when she was about four or five years old, realized we had a train track that ran by, and the train always blared when she went to sleep. Train track ran by the house. And I was putting her to bed one night, and she didn't want to go to sleep. I said, why? She said, I'm scared. I said, what are you scared of? She said, well, what if the train comes through my room? I said, well, honey, the train has to stay on the tracks. Well, can trains jump the track? Yes. Well, what if it comes through my room? I said, well, honey, it can't jump that much. Well, it might, I thought, bless her heart, she doesn't need to fear that train. What are you afraid of? You got the power of God in you? You got your superpower? Got the Holy Spirit? You, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid because you walk in the name of the Lord our God. Name, Shem in Hebrew. It doesn't mean just a label. It's talking about God's resume. Let me tell you about my God. My God is stronger than any problem you've got. My God comforts those who mourn. My God ministers to those in need. My God can cause your heart to exult in joy, even in the midst of misery. I've got a God who's coming again, who's going to make everything right. I've got a God who's going to reunite me with my past family members who've passed on to glory. I've got a God who's able to do far more incredibly abundant. I've got a God who said in the prophets, You Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you is going to come forth one who's going to be the, not just the ruler in Israel, but who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Of course, Jesus from Bethlehem Ephratah. Let me tell you about my God's resume because He resurrected Jesus from the dead. And Micah says, "Coming from Bethlehem Ephratah, is this one who will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God? Jesus, the Good Shepherd, who lays down His life for the sheep, who's the Good Shepherd who knows His sheep by name." That's who we've got. And that was the promised one. That is the promise. That's where we live. And I'm out of time, but I can't leave you without the points for home real quick. Here they are. Um, there, put that aside. Point for home. Be authentic. Know the difference between good and evil and live it. Remember justice is more than a courtroom. God's called on us to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with him. And remember, in all of your despair and all of your devastation, God stands on the other side of death, despair, and desolation. God wins over misery, anguish, and distress. And we may live in a blurry time where the water's all caked up with mud. But he's going to strengthen his flock He will stand and shepherd his flock. He's going to make everything settle down and we will see clearly one day, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, as we have been clearly seen. So those are the concepts I wanted to look back at with Micah. Uh, We'll put Micah back on the shelf. I'm excited to teach next week, but uh, don't worry about the concept city. We'll build our own on the word of God, okay? Let me bless you in the name of Jesus, and let's go. Father, in the name of Jesus, we rejoice in your truth. We rejoice in your love. We rejoice in your devotion, and we rejoice in your promise. Be present among us always, and may your praise be on our lips. We pray in your name, amen. See you guys next week.